Today's show is sponsored by our friends at Action247.com, Tennessee's only sports book by Tennesseans for Tennesseans. And man, what a week. It is MLB opening weekend. It is the Masters. There's so much going on. If you want to bet on Tiger Woods at the Masters, but you're worried about his injury, you can bet on Tiger as the overall winner, finish top 5, 10, or 20, top former winner, and if he needs to withdraw for injury, you get your stake back as a free bet up to 50 bucks for MLB opening opening weekend bet 25 on the money line on any mlb game but if your pick gets shut out they have a deal for you they'll hook you up with a 10 dollars free bet if your team loses in a shootout there's an nba parlay party on sunday and as always if you use code dads 100 they will match 50 percent of your first deposit up to 800 at action 247.com Today's show is also sponsored by our friends at orcacoolers.com. Something really cool is coming on the 18th. They are releasing their camper and their traveler. New from Orca, the traveler and camper. Get a handle on your chaser with our traveler and take your mug on the go with the Orca camper. State-of-the-art drinkware designed, powder-coated, and shipped out of Nashville, Tennessee. You know why we like them. Keep your hot drinks hot, keep your cold drinks cold, and make those memories last with Orca. Don't forget to use code DAD season and you will save 20% on your whole order at orcacoolers.com that's right get the whiskey barrel chaser get all the other good stuff the roto molded coolers only at orcacoolers.com use code dad season for 20% off last but not least today's show is sponsored by our friends at distilleryproducts.com the number one place to go for wholesale laser etch products they also have lots of cool swag bar swag all that kind of good stuff at distilleryproducts.com if you are a distillery you are a bourbon group you're a podcast you're a store and you need wholesale laser etch products you got to reach out to carson janey vicky all the good folks over it is a family affair that's where we get our stuff done over at distilleryproducts.com everyone my name is john edwards i am without zeke baker tonight that doesn't happen often lately used to happen a lot but together we are the dad's drink of bourbon wherever you are whatever time it is thank you for making us part of your day i'm just giving him hell because he's not here to give me a cold open but i have someone amazing here tonight from dunord social spirits all the way up in minnesota he's not there right now though he's down in the big easy and that is mr chris montana thank you so much for joining dad's drinking bourbon I want to join all kinds of conversations where people say that I'm amazing at the beginning. Right? This is this is great. I don't it, get this on a daily basis. It has been a huge year for y'all. I mean, and and the way that this came up, full disclosure to everyone, Nearest and Jack had an advancement initiative and Dunord was the first graduate of the business incubation program. We'll talk about that down the line, but we get press releases all the time and they say, hey, will you share this news with people? And I had actually heard from other people about Dunord and how I need to check it out. And I said, well, when they come to Tennessee, I'll be happy to check it out it's kind of hard to go all the way up to minnesota and go grab a bottle but i mean through this whole thing you're now in 10 states you're getting better distribution this is the beginning of huge advancements i do have to say your vodka is now on every single delta airlines flight domestically like this is a big thing for y'all lots of good stuff going on and just congrats oh thanks man 
It really is a trip, to be honest with you, thinking of where we've been and where we are. We've got a long way to go, right? But yeah, a couple of years ago, I kind of thought that we weren't going to have a distillery anymore at all. So the fact that now we're here and, you know, things are going well and looking, looking up, it's amazing. I'm very thankful and lucky. Which is a great place to start. Not the fact that you didn't think there was going to be a distillery, but let's start about what made you do a distillery in the first place. I mean, I know that like every good man, your wife had a lot to do with this. So (laughs) explain to me about the distillery and what made you have the idea for it in the first place. Yeah, my wife is the filter, right? (laughs) And, you know, we all play our roles in relationships and I am very open to risk. And, you know, I, I have enough arrogance. I'm not, see, now I'm older, so I can talk about this as if it's not a thing, right? But, you know, before you say it, and you know, in your 20s and people just think you're a jerk. But I have enough arrogance to think, oh, I can figure it out, right? So I like jumping off of cliffs, assuming I'm going to figure out how to sort this out on the way down. My wife is the one that says, yeah, maybe you're as smart as you think you are, but at least pack a parachute, right? Like she's the one who, who is the practical side of things. And so I took a little bit of convincing, but not as much as I thought I was going to get her to jump in on this. Truthfully, I was all about beer and I was brewing a lot. It was a fastidious brewer. Like it was, and by that, I mean, it wasn't about the magic, right? Like I, it wasn't like, Hey, let's see what this beer turns out. It's like, no, I want like repeatable, you know, I'm building recipes. I thought maybe one day I'll do a brewery, but there were so many breweries at the time. And it just, I, I didn't see, you know, I wanted these smaller sessionable beers and people were drinking bombers and, you know, how much, how many hops, how many, how much can we pack into this poor little bottle? How many times have you brewed this IPA? That, that's the big one. Like it's triple, you know, IPA. Yeah, yeah. It's like, man, who could possibly care? Right. Like I mean, <laughs> what matters is can you have more than one of them? And do you enjoy the experience? It was one of those first lessons of like, you know, there are people who are picking up products because of what it says about them. And there's people who are picking up products because of how they taste. And I think most people do both, right? They got the beer that they show you and then they've got the beer that they drink when you're not there. But, you know, from the beginning, like I wanted to be about the people who this is what you like. This is what tastes good. Like I want to drink this. It's not necessarily about what it says about me, but I want to drink it. And you know, I had a buddy in law school who chased me off of, of beer and said, what about distilleries? So you get to keep in mind. So this is, we started up in 2013. In 2013, there were no micro distilleries in the Twin Cities. There wasn't a single one. There was one micro distillery that had opened up in Osakis, Minnesota. Free points if you know where Osakis, Minnesota is, but it's nowhere near the Twin Cities. And it was because we had really bad laws, right? The fee was $30,000 a year to open a distillery until this bill got passed that people weren't really paying attention to. And it went from 30 K down to a thousand dollars. So while our fee was $30,000 in Wisconsin, it was 600 bucks. So of course, everyone in Minnesota just went to Wisconsin and they started their businesses over there. So we didn't really have a micro distilling scene. And so I thought, you know, again, a little bit of arrogance is like, I know about the beer side of it. I know how to, how to brew. I'm not used to brewing with corn, but I can figure that out. My wife grew up on a farm. We've got access to acres upon acres of corn and we can plant what we want. Like we've got the major pieces. Let's just do that. Right. And I assumed that it would work out. Turns out it's a little more difficult than that, but yeah, that's, that's how we got started. And for some reasons she said, yes, I can't tell you how similar your story. I mean, everybody's different. Everybody's from different places, but there's this common theme 
in whiskey that lawyers turn distillers. I mean, it's everywhere. There's Blue Note did it. H. Clark Distillery down here did it. And the funny thing is, you? and now I, so I did IT for lawyers, but I wasn't actually a lawyer. So uh, I'll tell you about that when we close this down. It's actually interesting. But the funny thing is, like Heath Clark in Tennessee, he had this really, really small distillery. He's now a part of company distilling with Jeff Arnett and Chris Tatum doing that big thing. But he basically helped write the bills, like helped change the laws around that same time as you to make distilling because in Tennessee it was county by county so you actually had to go and apply to have your county allow you to distill and that's the problem a bunch of Tennessee distilleries had and they went and they they changed laws and they got it done it takes lawyers to get in there and want to distill that actually changes the whole culture like that is such a big thing and i think it's when when we look back at this time in the country when there is this resurgence of distilleries and you had a whole bunch of microbreweries and now you have micro distilleries it's like who did it well you can blame the lawyers for that one yeah on two fronts right i mean the first so my wife is not a lawyer thank god she was the first president of the Minnesota Distillers Guild, and she has more to do with the fact that there are so many distilleries in Minnesota than probably any other single person. She doesn't get any credit for it, but she should. I'm biased, but you know, here I am. You're talking to me. I get to say these things. So she got things opened up, right? She got cocktail rooms. Without cocktail rooms, distilleries in Minnesota were never going to go anywhere, right? She got that done. Um, and so, yes, there, it, it helps having that, that background, um, you know, she works in, uh, public policy and, you know, having me as the attorney who also used to work in, you know, I worked for elected officials. So like we had an understanding there, so we knew what we were, or at least we thought we knew what we were doing. It is helpful there, but the other piece of it that I continue to enjoy, and sometimes you meet people and they don't really come from this. They come at the, at the industry and it's about making money, which is a foolish thing to do, but one of the best things, whether it's a lawyer or whatever, so many people who do this work, this is job two or three or four, like they've already done either something that they hated, right? Some sort of grind. And usually the story works out something like this. Like I was doing this thing, it paid decent, but there was something missing. And what's so cool about having so many people come into the industry with that kind of a foundation is that when they get into the industry, it's not just about grinding something out. It's not just about making money. They're trying to make something. They're trying to create something, something that they can be proud of. So it's not about putting bullshit in a bottle and slapping a label on it and hoping that people will buy enough of it that you can sell it to Diageo for umpteen million dollars and go buy an island. You actually care about what's in that bottle. It's fun for you. Even, even talking about it is fun for you. And it's so many businesses, you don't have that. You go to a widget factory, you're not going to have somebody doing that. But in this industry, in craft spirits, you got a lot of people like me who are on their second or third career and they're trying to get it right this time. I feel like a lot of these people too, and I'm, I'm wondering with you, how long did you have your foot in both doors? Because it's always when the lawyers are kind of transitioning over, it's like, yeah, my heart's over here distilling. My wallet is still over here with the law yeah. and I have a family to support. Eventually I'm going to cut the cord. I'm not necessarily there yet. And it might be one, two, three years down the line, but did you do both? How long was it for you? And I did do both. It was about a year. And the thing is, is that you're never there yet. And that's part of what I 
realize that you're always going to have, I mean, when we started, we had no money at all, right? So we've got a $60,000 loan from a community development organization. And if anyone tries to start a distillery for that today, you're out of your mind, right? We were out of our minds then, but I was still working. You know, I had a nice job. I was making, you know, this is a kid who grew up eating government cheese and I'm making a six figure salary. Right. And so I was like, all of that money was getting dumped right into the distillery. But Again, you, you can't do both well. I mean, the law takes a lot out of you. That, that needs 110% of your attention. And starting a small business, particularly a cash-strapped, vastly undercapitalized small business, takes 120% of your attention. You can't do both. But there's never that magic moment. It's kind of like having kids, you know? It's like every, you, you got grandparents or parents who are like, come on, get on it. Right. And you're like, ah, but I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for that. And what everyone tells you to the point that it's just gross to hear it. They're like, there's never a right time. You just got to do it. Like kids will find a way in your life. They'll sort this out. Right. And jumping off the cliff was the same thing. It's like, there's never a good time, but you're not really doing it until you do it. And that's the interesting part where you talk about, you know, you and your wife, where you're more of the risk taker and she's probably more risk averse. I mean, eventually you probably just said like, I got to do this thing. There's not a right time, but at the same time, $60,000 at that point, were you even thinking about distilling yourself or was it all sourcing? Like, what did you do? No, we were grain of glass, right? I mean, that again, like we charted the most difficult course possible. And had that little arrogant, you know, piece saying, ah, we'll figure it out. Like, yeah, I know that everybody says you can't do this, but we're going to do it. The thing is, I give my wife a, a ton of credit when it comes to the business. She's almost always been right. And it usually takes time for me to come around to it. She usually can see some of these things because she's not in the storm, right? Like she, she kept her job and thank God, because someone had to have a real one and actually put food on the table while I was just losing money for, you know, year after year after year. It really, I, I think that you you have to have some kind of a partnership like that, where you, you, there's got to be a yin and yang. There's got to be somebody to call bullshit when you're like talking about your pie in the sky plans and how this is all going to work out. Somebody's got to, you know, say, hey, come back on the earth and think about the real business aspects of this. I love that. I understand that. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is try having a podcast where I get reminded all the time, like, hey, the thing that you do and spend all your time on when you're not at work does not make money. You don't really have it set up in a way that it will. So at least yours eventually made money where there's no way I'm supporting my family off of a whiskey podcast. Hey, the argument for me is the same, I think, is the argument for you, which is when I left the firm, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the firm. But if you're setting yourself on a path that doesn't include happiness, it ain't going to work out for anybody, not for a marriage, not for a family, not for nothing. So we have to have those things that feed our soul. And I wasn't getting it in my legal career. She recognized this is this thing that he wants to do. And either it will blow up in his face and then he will have learned that or it will be good for his soul. Right. And so you let the people that you love go down the paths that they need to go down. And so that for me, it might be, you know, having this distillery and, and going on that journey for you. It might be consuming what these distilleries produce and talking about it and being, you know, in, in the community. But you got to have, you got to feed your soul one way or the other. A hundred percent. And speaking about feeding, you're, you're still needed to be fed. So you started this distillery. You now have a gin, a vodka, a whiskey, a coffee liqueur, and an apple liqueur. 
when you started this, what did you start with? Did you start with vodka, gin? Where'd you go? So we started with vodka. The original plan where my passion was, was in, in whiskey. And that that's true for a lot of people when they start off and they, they kind of look at vodka as this thing that you have to do to keep to the lights keep on. Yeah. And that's, and everybody says that. And to a point it's, it's now I actually very much enjoy vodka and enjoy the nuance of vodka. I think vodka is where is what yellow beer was 20 years ago. And that there's that people are going to consume it differently as we move forward. It'll be a little less, more about tape taste and less about just marketing and bullshit. Uh, but everyone has to say you go to like distilling conventions and whatnot and everyone it's all about whiskey. It's all about your age product. And, and I, I get that. I understand that passion because I have it myself. But when we started and we're just looking at vodka, it was out of necessity. There was nothing else that we could sell. And like I said, we had 60K. So we don't have any time. We've got rent bills that we've been paying for months, right? Before we were able to produce. We've got to do something. We got to do it now. So that's what we did. And it was our state's first craft vodka. And it did well. And then because of the way we made it, we had, you know, our cuts were, because again, I was more interested in whiskey. So we cut it kind of to have flavor, right? Well, that left us with all this flavorless booze. And my wife is like, you need to make a gin. And I hated gin. Absolutely hated it. It's, it's my favorite spirit now, but I hated gin. And so, and there's a whole story there, you know, of how we got around to making the gin. But then we took that, those cuts that we had sitting on the side and we turned that into our gin, right? So we originally started with the vodka and gin. We were putting some whiskey down too. But the reality of our business was, again, we didn't have any cushion. It was once a check came in the door, it went right out the door, you know, immediately. We didn't have any money. So we had to make the only thing that paid the bills. So over time, we became more and more and more focused on vodka and gin. We added the two liqueurs. We have no plans to add anymore. We got more and more focused on that at the expense of making whiskey. So the thing that got me into the industry in the first place ends up being the thing I make the least of. Before I ask about the whiskey, the whole thing sounds like, you know, a hunter where you're using all the parts of the animal and you're like, all right, I can't afford to waste anything. So I'm making these cuts for vodka. I'm going to use this. And that's the beautiful thing about gin, right? Is it's whatever you put in your basket. So you could take that flavorless stuff and actually infuse it with the botanicals in the basket, whatever you want to kind of put in there. That's awesome. I mean, that was a, that's resourcefulness right there. Well, you know what? All right. So in the very beginning, we were mashing and I took IBC toast and cut the top off, right? So we're mashing in those. I had an apple press that I use to try to get every last bit of juice out of out of our, our basically spent mash. And we were cold cooking. And so we had a massively inefficient, but 10-day process, right, for our fermentation. We would distill off and it was about wasting nothing. We had to paint the walls because the Department of Agriculture doesn't like unpainted walls. And so we used the four shots and the heads as the paint thinner. So that way I could paint the walls with a little sprayer. We would clean with the stuff. That, like we, nothing went to waste because there was no space to waste it, right? I mean, yeah, talk about using the whole animal. I mean, it, again, necessity. I have to assume that you got in there and were doing distilling from the beginning, right? Oh, yeah. The company was only, it was Chris and Chanel. There was nobody else. 
So I, I worked as an attorney during the day and occasionally like an order would come in and I'd be like, oh shit, I need to go to the distillery. The distillery is eight minutes from the law firm. That law firm's in downtown Minneapolis. If I could get to my car, it would take me eight minutes to get there. So usually if there was a truck or something, I'd be like, look, man, I'll be there in 15 minutes. So I could get there. I had a pair of coveralls right by the door. So that way I could walk in, take my jacket off, put the coveralls on so I wouldn't get my shirt and my pants dirty take whatever order I was going to take, or if, you know, we were getting a shipment in or whatever, hop on a forklift. Originally we didn't have a forklift. So I would use my truck to pull a pallet jack up with a rope. This whole thing's on a ramp anyway, long story. But the bottom line is that I would do all that, then take the coveralls off, go back to the law office. And then at night when I was done, so around six, seven o'clock when I'm done at the firm, I then would go to the Nord and I'd be distilling off at the very beginning. I'd be distilling off vodka in you know one of our larger stills and then at the same time i'd be using our small still this little eight gallon guy to do botanical distillations so i could you know figure out this gin thing and we did well over a hundred of these and i would just do it at night because i had nothing else going on so between watching vodka very slowly come off this still till three four five in the morning and distilling this other stuff and usually either the big lebowski or snatch playing on the tv (laughs) on loop that was my life for a decent chunk of time there's no employees or anything fancy it's like just me in a room with a lot of sawdust and making booze i wish zeke was here we quote the big lebowski to each other probably at least three times a day he likes these obscure quotes though like one of his favorite ones is uh when he says like like a child walking into a theater and it's like the most random quote from there and at first when he was doing it yeah i'm like where where's this like it's not over the line it's not anything like that it's like a child walking into a theater sometimes you got to go for the deep cuts one because it means more to you and two because it shows other people that you know the deep cuts Oh, yeah. And the best deep cut is like, you want a toe? I could get you a toe, dude. (laughs) I love this story, though, because you're talking about it nonchalantly. But I know from being a dad, I mean, at this point, you're getting in. I think you said your oldest was eight or nine. Eight. He's about as old as a distillery. So you're a new dad. Your wife's working. You have a kid. You're doing all this on like you're burning the candle at both ends. And I know exactly what it's like i was going to save this till the end but you talk about arrogance i don't think it's arrogance it's confidence not arrogance like the people that succeed are the people that want it more than other people zeke and i were just talking about the super bowl and that end of the game when it comes to the the offensive line holding back the rams d line like at that point it's a question of who wants it more who wants it you need five seconds Who's going to stop them for five seconds? And Rams want it more. The Rams D want it more. You, you succeeded or are succeeding, right? And are growing your company. You have to be hungry to put in those hours after a long day doing lawyer stuff. We all know how that is. Like there is just a hunger there and, and the people that are willing to grind it out and put in the work I find tend to be more successful than the people that are like, ah, you know, I had a long work day. I'm just going to skip distilling tonight. I'll catch up on it later. It's still going to be there. But like, if you want to be successful and you want to keep going, you have to grind it out. Yeah, I completely agree. I told Chanel at the beginning, I said, you got to give me five years, five tough years. 
And we didn't really make it five years in the way that I was planning. But, you know, because like I said, and, and as you mentioned, you know, my oldest son is about as old as the, as the distillery. So when we started this, we had a newborn. Newborns don't really care about dads, right? I mean, they're they're very much attached to mom, but there was a, a point and it's part, you can, we were talking before about when, when did it, you know, you have to just jump in with two feet. Well, it correlates to the time that my son knew full well who dad was and when and could say my name, could say daddy in his, you know, little, you know, one and a half year voice. And every day I would come home and he would see me. And that kid, it was like pure joy you could cut with a knife, like him screaming my name and running over and hugging me. And I was immediately aware of the fact that I'm going to do the thing that I said I would never do, which is because I didn't grow up. I was adopted when I was 14. I didn't grow up with a dad. And so I wanted to be a dad and I wanted to be a really good one, but you can't be a good one if you are not present. And even if what you're doing is about building something for your family and you hope that they'll understand that when they're 20, you, you're not going to get back, you know, those years between two and 18, that child, right. Running at me. And I was like, you know what, there has to be, I have to be present for him. Right. Like, so this grind has to be modified. I can't be both lawyer, Chris, and distiller Chris and have no capacity left. I mean, in those early days, I, most nights I slept at the distillery. I didn't get home. Occasionally my wife would come by and like, bring me food <laughs> and, you know, things like that. Like say, hi, give me a kiss when she could, when she could take or take a lunch break and come over and say hi. Otherwise we didn't see each other. Right. And that works. You can, you can pull that off but when you have kids and you know that they're missing you. Like you can't, it kills you. It kills you every second. And so something had to give. And one thing made me happy. And so I, I stuck with that. Um, so that way I could be a present dad. I totally understand that. You know, I had a job change myself. And I think the ability to pick my daughter up every day at school and drop her off every day at school, like there's just stuff I know that she's going to remember I did and that I was there for that you can't take back. And this whole conversation so far, I mean, I know we're only, you know, what, 20 something minutes in, but all I want to do is like, find you go down to new Orleans, bring a bottle, open it up. I mean, I feel like we're cut from the same cloth in so many ways. So I'm down, man. You're welcome. I mean, there there's Sean Joseph's is down there too. If, from Pinhook. if you haven't hooked up with him yet, I'm going to have to get you, uh, over to Sean. Sean is awesome. And, uh, he used to own Benton's if you've been there to eat. Now he does Pinhook. Always down. Again, we're, we're new, right? We're new New Orleanians. Um, and not even technically New Orleanians. We're in St. Tammany Parish, but yeah, I'm always down to meet folks out here and come on. I mean, if for, for folks who know me and our staff, for example, like I have on my calendar, there's a bar that's just called dad time. That's from two to three every single day. And it's, I go get my kids. I bring them to school in the morning. That's my time with them where we can just talk and chat and whatever. And like, I'll do, I try not to do things at night and I try not to do things in the evening, particularly with crazy soccer schedules and baseball and everything else. It's like, but we just don't schedule anything from two to three because that's like, they're captive. They're right there. They can't leave the truck. Like we, you know, we can talk about their day and see what's going on and they don't get as many opportunities. Kids don't always open up to both parents the same way. And so that's, that's my little safe space where they can just chat with dad. So it's important. It's important to make those times. 
You're a hundred percent right though, that it takes them longer. I mean, I remember the first two years it was like, don't get discouraged when all she says is I want mommy. Like eventually your time's going to come, but it was a lot of, I want mommy. I don't want daddy. So I don't have a daughter and I don't know how this would have been different if I had a daughter, but it was like a, each one of the kids flipped a switch and they're all about mom. You know, where's mom? Where's mom? Where's mom? And then something happened and it was now if they're hurt or if they're sad, where's mom? Right. But it was just, what is dad doing? Anything dad is doing, I want to do like, where's daddy? I want to sit by daddy. We have a rotation in our house. We have three boys. We have a rotation about who sits next to me because otherwise it causes like a fight. I've got an eight-year-old, six-year-old, and a four-year-old, and they will just battle over, well, I get to sit by dad. No, it's my day to sit by dad. And I know, like I, I, the whole Oedipus thing, I think is dead on. At some point, they're going to want to kill me, right? (laughs) So I know this is not going to last, but at this age, it's still happening and it's kind of great. And so I'm just soaking it up. And like, you know, my wife like does all these things for the kids and she's chopped liver, right? But again, this will all change. I know it. So I'm living it right now. I'm enjoying it. I will tell you, my dad is my best friend. By far, I call him every morning when I'm leaving the gym. He doesn't have a whole lot of friends. (laughs) So I'm his guy. I'm his best friend and I know it. And uh, I never wanted to kill him. So that is a hope. There's hope. That's good to know. Back to this whole distillery thing. I mean, we could talk parenting and all that all day, but is that not what we're here to do? I can I can move on. I I'm halfway through the whiskey that I poured at the beginning of this. So I know it's about time for me to pour another one. I've really enjoyed this mixed blood whiskey so far. I mean, let's talk about it a little bit because we talked about the vodka and the gin. What then got you into the whiskey? And I know you have access to a whole lot of corn. I definitely get that on this. Like, I I definitely think it is a corn forward pour. But tell me a little bit about this mixed blood. Uh, I know it's some of your stuff mixed with some other stuff. Yeah. And that's, and hence the name. Job number one, one of the first things that we wanted to make very clear when we got into this industry and our critique as we walked up and down the shelves is that it seemed like a few people were making all the stuff and slapping different labels on it. So we, we transparency matters. We had, so originally our whiskey was uh, Longfellow was the name of it. We didn't release Longfellow because we frankly did not have enough of it. And when we decided to do a blend, um, we wanted to make it clear that this was not all coming from us, right? We weren't going to try to pawn off other people's juices, ours. And so we called it mixed blood because that's what it is. It's a little bit of us. It's a little bit of, of other houses. And our whiskey, so we're, it's small barrel whiskey, uh, 40% rye, right? And so it's very high rye. And, but our distillate and call it the still, you know, call it just personal taste preferences, um, we, we pull a lot of vanilla, a lot of sweetness, like that corn is, is big and you throw that into a small barrel and, and it, it'll mute it. It gets to a point where it is arguably over oaked. So when we were thinking about releasing a blended whiskey, we wanted it to be a whiskey that one, the average person could afford and two, that was approachable, a little more approachable than 
you know, the barrel strength stuff that I wanted to put out originally, because one of the lessons that I've learned is just because you are into it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the market is trying to drink right now. And so they don't necessarily want something that's 121 proof and, you know, is big and, and bold like that. And so we tried to find a, a happy middle ground with mixed blood. And so we, we blend it up to take a little bit of that edge off. I still like rye. I can't read the labels behind you, but I'm sure there are a number of weeded bourbons back there. And I have a, you know, vendetta with weeded bourbons, but this seems like something we got to dive into a little bit more. What's the (laughs) vendetta against weeded bourbons? Full disclosure, I've had um, wheat whiskey and and this is personal preference. I always start with like, look, what I, I don't know any more than anybody else, right? Like we all have our palates. We all, whatever, everybody's legit. Just happens to be that for my particular palate, I don't get much out of wheat whiskey. So wheat whiskey has an actual category. And if I take it to a bourbon, I feel like I'm drinking corn whiskey. And I would rather just have corn whiskey. It's like, take me all the way there. Give me give me the full body. Give me the weight. Give me all of that. Give me oily. I think that there are ways, there are places that I think can get it right and right for me. But a lot of times that wheat just kind of stands like a window. And it, it lets what's behind it come through. There are, you know, there's a place, uh, it's in Ohio. Um, Middle West. Middle West. And they get a huge vanilla note and they get it out of their wheat. I love that. Right. So there, there are exceptions to this, but man, I just, it, it seems like we throw in, you know, whatever wheat you could find on the commodity market and it, it just acts like a window. Whereas when I get something with, good quantity of rye to it, or at least where the rye is pronounced, right? Like not corner crop rye, right? Like not, not the rye that is planted all over the place to deal with where the irrigation arm doesn't reach, right? Which is what we get a lot of in the States. Some good full bodied rye, it adds character. And so there's, instead of, instead of the corn doing all of the work, the corn can create a foundation the rye can you know finish and you know knock out of the park and i that's just my personal preference so i know it's fighting words i know like you know who knows you're gonna get death threats or something but no i i don't think you are and you we've been very critical about wheat i like i mean it's it's kind of what's the magic of makers that they've taken this six-year wheat and made it real you know four to six-year wheat whatever it is don't kill me that i got the age statement wrong for makers mark um i i'm pretty sure it's six yeah it's roughly six years for makers you wheat takes longer and we've had companies send us and you know off the books hey here's a sample of something we're working on what do you think about it and when it comes to wheat and if it's not old enough i literally have told brands like i don't get a note like i drink it i'm not getting a note on this it's not bad it's not good i don't get anything it needs more time in the barrel a lot of companies their biggest problem with wheat is just that they don't let it sit it just takes longer if you get that right age or makers does it really well weller does it well although i did prefer weller when the age statement you know when they didn't have a million different skews and dilute the age statement of weller antique and all that other stuff but you know i think weller antique used to be eight nine years old and now it's kind of six seven years old and i think it suffers because of that Mm. doesn't mean you're not going to find a good one but wheat is just like we did a blend for a brand and there was corn whiskey wheat whiskey and rye and we were to blend it together 
and the wheat was just hitting it like and and it was making it super hot we sat there with the brand and said like yeah we want to do this blend and it wasn't a big blend right it was like you know 200 something bottles but it's like hey if we do this can we just cut the weed out and they're like oh yeah sure not a problem and then the blend completely changed and it was it was just that particular wheat whiskey was hot you aren't gonna have fighting words with anyone if you say wheat is finicky people that are around the industry and and know whiskey know that wheat is a bastard when you get a good wheat you're like oh man this is sweet it goes down easy i love it and then when you get a bad wheat you're like yeah i completely agree and you know the same well similar things can be said about rye because it's one of the more difficult whiskeys to make i mean it's it's it is a cruel mistress and that's part of why i think that a high rye bourbon is kind of this middle ground where you're not in the minefield that is rye where one batch can be great and the next batch is mind shatteringly awful and because you you've got a little bit of leeway there's at least 60 percent corn in there and for most people more you have something else to build on right and you can let rye just do one thing as opposed to carry the entire thing i mean making rye whiskey is tough too and i i feel for anyone to let's put it this way I never figured out how to make wheat whiskey taste like something I would want to drink. And that's our rules that we got to like it. And so for the people who have figured it out, it's like they are smarter than me. I will bow down to them and more power to them. But, you know, you're, you're buying this stuff that your body doesn't need, right? Like we're, we're putting stuff into our bodies and, you know, if you got to like it. You could be doing this for 250 years, right? And say, look, this has been widely recognized as the best whiskey ever. But if you take a sip of it and you don't like it, you shouldn't buy it, right? It's not good to you. And I get that. A lot of people will be like, oh, but you haven't had this wheat whiskey. And I'm like, okay, maybe. But I probably have three, 400 bottles of whiskey sitting in this room, <laughs> right? Like I got plenty of whiskey. I don't know that I need any more, right? Not my stuff, but other stuff that I just kind of get. It's like, I'm not looking for any, any, you know, new ones or to be, be challenged on this. I've done my homework. I've done enough. I've suffered enough. Everybody is just going to say that though. That's the beautiful thing about whiskey. Like they're going to be yeah. like, Hey, but have you had the 2020 expression from this brand? It's not necessarily like something that you could easily get now it's like yeah i know you don't like wheat but have you had this old fits from 1974 like this is going to change your mind on wheat whiskey yeah and maybe they're right right (laughs) but i but here's you know you want some more blasphemy from a guy who makes money selling booze i've got a threshold for how much money i'm going to spend on alcohol right so if somebody comes to me and says look it's a hundred dollar bottle and it's great it's like "Mm -hmm." pretty good chance I'm taking a pass. I rarely have anything that I think is worth a hundred dollars. Right. So some, some 1974, some, something like, you know, people who are resurrecting these old brands and whatnot, well, maybe then, but no, I look for something that, that I can afford. That's a value brand. I hope if one of these days, maybe I win the lottery and I've got millions of dollars coming out of my ears, but I'm pretty sure I'm still going to be like buying accessible whiskey because it's people have figured this out. Like, and, and that's, that's one of the big differences with whiskey is that we, we come on the heels that whole, all of craft distilling comes on the heels of craft brewing, but craft brewing solved the problem, right? There was a real problem with beer. There wasn't a problem with whiskey necessarily, right? Most people would say there was no problem. The whiskey that was out there was great, right? You can spend $30 and get great whiskey. No big deal. So it's not like we had to show up and teach the world to teach, you know, the United States or any other market. Like, no, this is what whiskey is supposed to be. 
we're here to add something to the library. It's that that's this idea, and I don't even know what, how I started talking about this, but it's this idea that the greatest whiskey hasn't been made yet. You have to believe that. Otherwise, how, what, what are you doing? Like, why are you making whiskey? Why are you, why are you in this business? You have to believe that the greatest one hasn't been made yet. And then you could be the one who gets the golden ticket and gets Wonka's Chocolate Factory. It's really funny, though, that you mentioned that because $100 is a huge Mendoza line for me. And I always say, like, if you're going to price it at three figures or above, you have to bring it. And I am very critical of the stuff that's over $100. Like Old Fitz, funny to bring that brand up again. Like what Heaven Hill does with their Old Fitz release is each year is priced 10 bucks. But at least there's a rationale that I can understand. So their 14-year Old Fitz release is $140. The seven-year Old Fitz release is $70. Like, okay, you have a method to your madness, but some of this stuff comes out. It's whatever year whiskey we sourced it. So it's over a hundred bucks or, Hey, it's a limited edition. We distilled it ourselves. It's limited edition, but because it's limited edition, it's over a hundred bucks. Like I love the brands and, and, and I almost think there's this emerging category right now of that 30 to $50. And I think mixed blood is kind of in that 30 to 40 range, right? Right in the middle. And, and I feel like, you know, you're going to have your beams, your makers, your heaven hills, like they all have brands that are in that 30 and below category that are solid, solid drinkers. The craft we understand, and, and I think the community understands with craft whiskey, not everybody is a Denord and not everybody has access to corn as much as they want. But some of these other craft distilleries, they don't have the same corn prices as the big boys. They don't have the same barley and rye prices and uh, wheat and barrels and transportation. And they don't have the same distro deals. They can't offer the same things to the, the stores like buy 80 cases and you're going to get a whole lot of savings. Like there are things there that crafts get that bump for. I think having that bump kind of bump you up to 30 to 50 is one thing. Having that bump bump you over a hundred bucks. It, like I understand the hometown you want to support the hometown distillery, but I think it's got to be within reason. And I see brands and they're a little bit bigger than you, but you know, brands like Chattanooga whiskey that put their own distillate when they switch from MGP, they put out their 91 proof at 30 and their 111 proof at 40. The loyalty that people have for those brands that actually price well, mm -hmm. it's crazy. It's like, do you want to make a buck now or do you want to get a drinker for life? Yeah, no, I agree. And I, you know, I'm sure somewhere on that bar, you've got probably some of the same $300 bottles that I have. And, you know, and it's, I'll take sips of them and largely because I got them for free. <laughs> and and I'll say, hey, it's, is it is it good whiskey? Sure, it's a good whiskey, right? But this whiskey's got to be good, and you know, do my taxes. Like it's it's got to be over the moon. Like it's it's got to change your outlook on life. You know, like spend three hundred dollars on it. You know, three four hundred dollars on it. I, actually, my my production manager Maria has a bottle. It was a, a lost barrel, kind of one of these orphan barrel type things, and. I think that its retail price was like $600. She didn't pay $600 for it. It was given to us. And it wasn't great. It was one of those situations where you're like, yeah, this barrel probably didn't import for a reason. But, you know, $600, like someone's going to look at it and say, this is like 16, 18 year old, you know, which is too old for a bourbon. But it's, you know, 16, 18 year old whiskey. It's got to be good. There was a 20 something year old whiskey that 
might cost about $2,000 a bottle. I didn't buy that. I'm not buying that bottle. But there was a a local place that had it for $100 for an ounce pour. They said, we're going to go ahead and do these pours at cost. We want people to just be able to try it. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to try this. And I had it and it was the thinnest thing I've ever drank. You know, like if I'm spending that much, I like a little bit higher proof at that point because I want it to feel like I'm getting my money's worth. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the highest proof. Mouthfeel would be a big thing for me there. Like I just want to feel like it's coating and... I had this, I was like, this is the thinnest pour I've ever had in my life. And it costs a hundred bucks. Like I was disappointed, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm so happy because now I could check that off. I never need to go find that bottle. Yeah. You know, it's not a direct correlation with the cost. And then and part, of, I mean, look, you gotta be honest, this is a business and people are trying to, there are many people out there who are, you're just trying to squeeze as much money as you can out of, out of every drop that you get, whether you made it or whether you sourced it. You know, again, we've got a product that has sourced whiskey in it. So, you know, we're we're very clear about that. If we were just selling the Longfellow, it would be prohibitively expensive, so much so that I wouldn't buy it. So, you know, it's, I don't know, that that I think is largely where you, there's a lot of these companies who are, are sourcing and then they're switching back and then, you know, they're, or they're basically matching, matching the mash bill and then, you know, producing after the fact. And I get that, but if in fact you were buying this product and it, it costs you X, then it should probably cost, you know, X by a reasonable multiple, like not necessarily to say like, Hey, you know, but I put my name on it and therefore it's, you know, $120. It's like, come on. It's not a long-term play. There's really good blending though. I, I and I think that's where the marketing comes in in whiskey mm-hmm. is now that it's, you know, we can blend a hell of a whiskey and the blender is getting you know kind of like scotch right where scotch has the blenders are the rock stars over there over the distillers i feel like the past few years in whiskey the blenders are really kind of rising up in prominence and i see that it's the marketing spiel is this is x amount because this blend is better. Like these other people might have the same juice, but we blend it better. Yeah. And I would take nothing away from blenders and from. Oh, you know, neither would I, right? Meeting some of these folks with the super palates and what they can do that I cannot and the notes they can taste that I can't even come close to. I mean, it, it, they really are amazing. However, their amazingness, if it is to take, as you said, the same constituent pieces and put them together in substantially similar ways than how somebody else did it, then the mere fact that they did it, you know, how much should that inflate the price? Like, I love trucks. I've never owned a Ford because I feel like I'm just paying for the shield, you know? Like, if it can pull as much and can seat as many people as, you know, a, a cheaper truck, then I'm probably going to buy the cheaper truck. It's going to get the job done. I have a Ford <laughs> truck, but... but hey, for the shield, man. Anyway, no, I will tell you, I'm not dumb. I bought a used Ford truck and they depreciate how much as soon as you get it off the lot. Why the hell are you going to buy a new truck? Like a third or something like that. Yeah. Driving off a lot. I have a great truck and I'm going to drive it till it's 200,000 miles or more. So it's the way I look at it. Moving on, I do like this whiskey. I mean, not to bring back the Pinhook reference, Sean Josephs from Pinhook was a wine sommelier. So when he made Pinhook, he said, when you look at wine, the grapes stand out, they go forward. When you have a whiskey, why is it a bad thing to showcase the corn? 
It's the main ingredient in everything. Kind of going back to what you were talking about before, I feel like that's a similar ethos with this pour that, you know, and and it's not, when I say corn, this is not corn like a certain distillery in Tennessee that people are going to say that 84, 8, and 8. It's not that type of corn. It's very much a sweet corn, not a candy corn or not a caramel corn, but it is a sweet corn and you know it's there, but it's not overpowering. You know, this is 80 proof, so it's not one of those things where you're expecting to get this bold pour. It is supposed to probably be an easy sipper, nice light and sweet if it's something that's like a 90 to 100 proof we would probably call it a crusher mm-hmm. well look i and again like the proof here and even putting out a whiskey at 40 percent alcohol right which as it happens is not where i typically not what i would pick up we want to mix blood and you know just being 100 percent honest with you when we were looking at our whiskey program we're like look we're going to release mixed blood we weren't sure that we were going to keep selling it though like we thought, you know, we have to, our whiskey program slowed down, you know, we're going to revive it. And so later on, we might retire this and it will, you know, help us fund some of the things that we need to do. Um, we'll be transparent about that so people know it, but we'll help. But if we're going to do that, then let's make a whiskey that is approachable and that people can can get into and you don't have to fight for the notes do a lot of tastings and sometimes would do whiskey tastings and people are like, ah, I just taste alcohol. It's like, yeah, I just diluted 50, 50 with water. Like get it down to a place where you can taste the notes. And we're like, okay, well let's just, that, that's what whiskeys at this proof should be able to do. Right. Anybody should be able to pick it up, take a sip warm and say, all right, I'm tasting some of what's going on in here. Right. So it's, it's, I don't want to, I'm not disparaging the whiskey. I think to say that it is, I don't want to say an entry-level whiskey, but it's an entry-level whiskey. But it's meant to be that. It's meant to be something that people can pick up, put in a glass, and someone who doesn't drink a lot of whiskey is going to enjoy it. And someone who does drink a lot of whiskey is going to recognize the notes in it and say, maybe it it might not be at the kind of proof that they're looking for, but they still, they can recognize what we were trying to do with that blend. I would agree with that. And I would also tell people that, you know, there are some nights you're working late and you don't want to be drinking 120 proof whiskey. You need something that you just, you know, want to sit there and be able to sip on it and get those notes and have that pour, but still be able to focus on, you know, that legal brief you're writing at 11 o'clock at night. So I, I think that's a fair shout. The question I would have before we talk about this initiative and and i let you go to bed what is next then because or or is it something that you're still figuring it out you know the vodka and the gin those are kind of the pillars that the distillery is is founded on at this point you still love whiskey so there at some point you probably want to expand that but it would probably be when the vodka and the gin grow a little bit more you have a little bit more distribution you're in 10 states now but you you know, maybe it's you're putting aside a barrel of whiskey a week or a month, right? Like it's not something that you're doing a big production of. And eventually you get a bigger still, you're able to do a little bit more, right? Like this, this is the evolution of a distillery. Yeah. And we have, we've got a heavy lift on our hands with the vodka and gin alone. And as you mentioned, the, the deal with Delta Airlines, that's that's a lot of juice moving. We've never been in a place where we're trying to build the brand, which you would think that's part of owning the business. But 
I didn't start it with a marketing head. I didn't start it really dreaming that big. I, I, I started and I, I was under this impression of make good booze, you know, something will happen and then profit. And so now we, that didn't work out just that way. Um, apparently you have to be in the, the business of selling this stuff and it takes a lot of your a lot of your time and a lot of effort to build one brand uh, successfully. And we have five. We are in a, in a place right now where we're trying to figure out what exactly we're going to do. But what I will predict is that mixed blood probably doesn't go away, but mixed blood becomes a 100% blended whiskey. We'd spend the time to go out and find the whiskeys that are going to represent something that, that we enjoy while we focus on the other products. Because the, the reality of happening with our distillery is you don't know where things are going to take you. And if you would have asked me eight, nine years ago, do you think that 90% of your production is going to be vodka? I'd say you're out of your mind, but it is. That's not a bad thing. I mean, we have reasons now as we've restructured the company, as we now have the foundation and as all the work that we're doing behind the brand, we have good reason to try to build that brand because it lets us do other things that feed our soul. We can't have all things. We don't have the capacity for it, but we are building out a facility in North Minneapolis that will have a much more capacity. And I think once we have it, then we're going to be able to do whiskey the way we want to do it. But right now, having half of the distillery that we used to have, right, because we lost part of it in 2020, we don't have the real capacity to, to handle what we're doing right now and also really put the time in that, that whiskey deserves to revitalize it from the grain up. Predicting here, uh, I don't think I've had this question really asked, and I'm not even sure that you asked it, right? But um, I led yeah. you there. I steered you. You yeah, know, just right. well done, masterful. Yeah, I, I think that there's a there's a good chance that it goes to being 100% sourced. And you know, again, whenever we make these kinds of moves, we're transparent about it. Uh, but if people enjoy the product and they want the product, then we'll put it out there. But I will always reserve somewhere in the back of this doesn't have to make money, but I just want to do it because I like it. I will always reserve the right to go back and do this whiskey the way that I wanted to because we were on a really good path. And, you know, our process was not that efficient, but it was creating something that was unique. That's exciting to me. So one of these days, I'm going to have the time to go back and pick up that thread again. But right now, we we have our hands full. And that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Like, it's almost like you know, the lawyer has become vodka and gin, and you're sitting there at the still, maybe maybe it's 10 o'clock at night. You're just like, let me fire up some whiskey. Let me get a barrel, put it aside. And then you get enough barrels put aside. And you're like, all right, I'll do a little release here. Maybe that's the way that, that you get, you know, it's an LTO. Yeah, I, I could see something like that. And we play around and like I said, we have five SKUs, which to me is a ton. And I know craft distilleries, many of them have 40, you know, but five is a lot. Five is a lot to do well, but that doesn't mean that we aren't playing around. Right. We got plenty of things that we're screwing around with and that we've, you know, sitting, we got a barrel gin that's actually pretty damn good. We just keep drinking it ourselves, but eventually we'll get it into barrels or get it into bottles and, and let other people try it. But yeah, we've some other liqueurs we're playing around with staff are just playing and creating things. Some of them are awful, but some of them are actually really good. So we're, we're always doing that. And so it may be, in fact, it's probably most likely, as you said, that we'll have a whiskey program that 
kind of slides in there for people who are paying attention, you know, we'll, we'll let them know, Hey, we did this thing. And if you want to try it out, like we think it's pretty good and it'll be a limited release and that'll be that. And then maybe we'll disappear for a little while and we'll <laughs> surface again with another barrel we like, and you know, we'll just do it that way. I like a distillery down here, uh, Leaper's Fork. They do a thing every year where two weeks they shut down the regular production and it's just experimental. They kind of let it, like if, if you knew you had your vodka gin program and you knew you had to distill you know, a certain number of cases a year, you could almost take a week or two and be like, you know what, this is the week we're throwing down whiskey and rye and whatever else it is. If you can figure out how to distill rye by then, but I think you will. <laughs> Well, we actually made some rise. I was really happy with it. The problem is, is that uh, we made some barrels and they were just dead on. And then we opened some other barrels and they were not right. And so I'll look, this is, I don't call myself a master distiller. I never will. Some people can earn that title. Um, I don't think it's one that you can ever really get because this ain't something that you master. Right. So I'm, I'm learning every day and I'm blessed to be in an industry where people share knowledge. And so I've got plenty of other booze nerds that I can call up when something ain't working for me. So one of these days, again, that great American whiskey, like we might be the ones to make it, but that's, that's what keeps us going for the future, right? A hundred percent. I can't wait to see where that future goes. I do want to talk about this initiative and I feel bad that I haven't mentioned it. You know, like obviously you go to Dunord's website. You are a black owned brand with a diverse team. It is part of your story. I probably should have mentioned that an hour ago. You know, this initiative um, and, and a lot of the stuff that, that Nearest and Jack have been doing, it's kind of a special thing. You know, the whole story there of Nearest Green and, and Jack has allowed for them to have this kind of partnership. And this partnership allowed them to do a business incubation program. So basically, their advancement initiative, it was aimed to advance diversity within the American whiskey industry with a business incubation program, leadership acceleration program, and the creation of the Nearest Green School of Distilling. The business incubation program, this is where like I shouldn't have had three glasses of your whiskey by the time I had to read. <laughs> Um, the business incubation program offers BIPOC entrepreneurs mentorship in all areas of the distilling business, including access to marketing, branding, expanded distribution networks, and other assets and opportunities for growth. So at this point, I think I should stop reading and have you tell me a little bit about this program and what it was like to actually go through it. Yeah, happy to. It was a once in a lifetime experience and uh, has done amazing things for our company. So when when this was uh, hatched, and I wasn't in the room when it was hatched, I was on a call with the people who hatched it, though. And this was uh, shortly after George Floyd had been murdered, and you know we were kind of a wreck in every sense of the word. And people ask me all the time, you know, well, what's it like being, you know, there aren't that many black people in the industry. It's certainly not at the ownership level. It's like, what's that like? And it's like, well, you know, truthfully, we've spent so much time trying to just do this that we don't have a lot of time just to think about, well, what, how is it different for us than it is for other people? I know some of the hurdles that we had to overcome coming into this, but it doesn't, the, the most depressing part of it is that how is it ever going to change? Like at, at its natural pace, maybe 20, 30 years from now, we have a few people who are in, but it's going to take some intentional action to change it. And I had been working on a program within the American Craft Spirits Association, which is kind of 
you know, foundered. And, and as I left leadership there, I wasn't sure that it was going to keep going. And the folks from Jack Daniels and Uncle Nearest took that and just snapped their fingers and boom, there was a program. <laughs> and there and there we were. And there was $5 million behind it. And it was like, that's how fast things can happen when people just say this needs to exist in the world. So I give them all the credit in the world for, you know, breathing life into it and making it reality. It's crazy that partnership and just how they've been able to take that legacy. I mean, even at Jack now, there's a whole thing about nearest green and and just what they're able to do to make things better. The money that Jack Daniels has, and I mean, hell, Uncle Nearest is everywhere now. Like, I don't, I've never seen a craft spirit become worldwide so quickly. They've just blown up. Going back to a point you made, obviously understanding I'm white and I have not experienced it, but I was thinking about it before we were going to talk and I was like, what is it like to be a black owner or distiller? It's very difficult to, you know, it's kind of like if I were to ask my wife, What's it like being a woman? She could give me some data points, but she's never really going to be able to convey it. I think one of the things that is that is ever present, whether it's that it's you're a black distiller or insert any modifier that makes you different than most people within a particular space, is that there is a different lens that is shined on you. And the magnifying glass is both bigger and smaller but the expectations aren't bigger. Uh, they're usually smaller. Uh, no one really believed walking in the door that I was going to be able to do this. And on paper, did very well in law school. I, you know, on paper, I should be a, you know, English major who did well in school. I don't know what the English degree was going to do for me, but uh, you know, my wife also accomplished woman, but on, but people looked at us and they looked at me as the person who was going to lead this and people must not have thought that they're going to be able to pull it off. And I'm aware of that. When I watch other people who got off their couch and raised millions of dollars, right? And for no, it's like good for them. I don't feel any ill will towards any of those people, but I, I more think of it in terms of, well, who's coming next? And, you know, it's not, there isn't equity there. I know that. And you live that every single day. And when I walked into my first distillers convention, looked around, I was the only black person in the room. There were a thousand people there. I'm familiar with that feeling. I grew up with that feeling. I grew up in Minnesota. It's not pleasant. Like there's a reason why I live in New Orleans now, right? It's because you get sick of the most relevant and memorable thing about you being your race, despite what you might do. You know, like I've always had color in front of my name. It's like, Chris, he's the black attorney. He's the black, uh, you know, congressional aide. He's the black this, black that. And you just get sick of it. And you just want to blend into, into the crowd and just be a little bit more anonymous. But you can't because that lens is always there. And I look at that a couple different ways now. Um, but if you look at our marketing, we've rebranded. We now talk about the fact that it's the first Black-owned distillery. But we didn't in the beginning. First of all, I didn't know. Second of all, once we did know, it just bummed me out. Right. It's not something to celebrate. Right. At least that's the way I looked at it. Now we, we come at this from a little bit of a different angle. And, you know, at the risk of rambling on, it got this confirmed for me 
just a few weeks ago, actually. We can't be secret about these things, right? If we really want this to change, if we want there to be, you know, little black boys and girls who think, you want to know what, I could do that too, then they need to be able to see themselves in the industry. And so if we're just going to quietly be behind the scenes doing what we do and trying to be low key and diversifying the industry just through who we hire, that's not going to be enough. And I got an email from a guy and hopefully he won't mind me saying this, but I got an email from a guy he owns along with his wife um, and brothers, I think, owns Delta Dirt, uh, which is a distillery in Arkansas, right? And I believe they're the first Black-owned farm. I don't know what you'd call it. It's not grain to glass, but like farm to bottle, right? They're growing sweet potatoes and uh, distilling spirits from their sweet potatoes. An amazing group of people, incredibly humble. But he sent me an email. I'd known this guy for a couple of years. He sent me an email. He said, you know, I never told you this, but one of the reasons why we were able to do this distillery in the first place is we went to an American Craft Spirits Association conference and saw you winning these awards. And his mother, right, who had to okay this, because this is a family farm, She looked up and saw me and said, well, if he can do it, then maybe we can too. And that hits me like a a Mack truck, right? It's like, you know, way to bury the lead. Know this guy for years and I'd never seen anything like that. I suppose now it it justifies some of the moves that we've made, but to not, if you think about it, if, if you don't do that, like that's the weight that's that you're carrying into the into the room because it's it doesn't work the same way if you get up and fail. Like if if you if people see you as the guy who couldn't make it, then yeah, they say, well, what happened to the first black owned distillery? Well, he couldn't make it. What's that going to do to all of the other people who we would hope will get into this industry in significant quantities so that the fact that they are black in this industry is 100% irrelevant. No one will care because there's so many, right? Like, so there's a lot of weight to that. And I'm, I'm always present and, and cognizant of that. And, you know, I'm not trying to whine and, and bitch and moan about it, but it's a thing. Yeah, that is such a tough thing because I feel like, and, and obviously, you know, I, I have different circumstances and I don't appreciate it the same way you do. I do appreciate the fact that putting yourself out there, you, you were a guy that just wanted to distill and by putting this other stuff around it that is not stuff like it's it's heavy things but it's a pressure that if you just want to be someone that goes and distills you're like all right well you know i wanted to distill i didn't think i was the first i didn't think that like i was gonna be the guy to be the torchbearer and then all of a sudden i can appreciate the mindset there and the pressure that's a lot but i also think the fact is that you know in talking to you you wouldn't let yourself fail you you ate breathed slept at the distillery if there was a person who should have been the first who was strong enough confident enough and stubborn enough to do it like it's you that's very kind of you you know obviously i knew about the distillery beforehand and in talking to you for the past couple of hours it's a hundred percent evident like you you're hungry for it you love it. it it is your passion and if there was ever anybody who could do that it's definitely you and and it's also your wife It's also the fact that she was a support system that was there to help you. You know, the other crazy thing too, is you never know what conversation you have, what you do, where somebody sees you at, like you never know how your interactions with people are going to completely change them for the rest of their life. That's the thing is that you never do, but there is, 
I think there are, are instances where you have a particular duty, and I I say that word in, intentionally because I think that it's real. Uh, where you have a duty and you have to fulfill it, and in my case, it has to it has to be that look if we find any degree of success, we have a duty to make sure that we open the door and stick our hand through and pull some people through it. I have a number of friends who are women in this industry, and they are sick of talking about being women in this industry. And if you ask them, like, what's it like to be a woman in this industry? They usually will roll their eyes and say, for fuck's sake, can we move on, right? And I feel for them. But the thing is, is that they got to suck it up (laughs) because until that question isn't news, they got to answer it. Funny enough, I had uh, Jane and Denny on from Makers going back to makers and it came, I hate asking the question. I, I, and it's almost why I didn't bring it up with you for the first hour and 15 minutes, right? Because whiskey is whiskey. Whiskey is, is one color. It's variation to that color, but like everybody that makes it, I just like to think of it's a good equalizer, but I also know that's not fair to the people that I'm talking to. Like they, they have a history and a background and, and that deserves to get talked about, but I will never ask the woman in whiskey question again, because I asked Jane, I said, why is it that women are always the blenders and men are always, you know, the distillers? Like, why is that? Having Denny there as well. And Denny started at Maker's Mark and he goes, you know, I was in quality to begin with a position to open up on the distiller's floor it was me and like three other women who were in the quality and that position opened up on the distillery floor and he's like they asked me i don't think they asked any of the women and it was always one of those things where that generation the women were always in quality and then quality moved to blending and the men were always distillers and it's it's now it's these people getting into the industry now where you have these women distillers you have you know the nicole austin's the alex castles you know the marianne eves the all those people that are really making a difference it's just starting to happen but everybody that was from that old guard it was men were on the distillery floor women were in quality yeah and it's good to see that the needle is moving but it hasn't moved that much right like again there's it's a short list yes and amazing people but this gets back to the same point is that they've got to be amazing like nicole austin is a dear friend i love that woman to death she has to be awesome she has to be she can't fail if she does there are all these other women and all these people who are going to be looking at that and saying oh yeah maybe we had it right maybe we just need to have guys in these positions right there's nothing fair about that that's the burden you you got to do it, right? You can't hide from it. And so for us, we can't hide from it, but I didn't get there by the way. Like I was very content to hide from that. And just, you know, our original, you never know that it was black owned. In fact, nobody did until the Super Bowl came to Minnesota and we had the black journalists show up and they're like, wait, what? It's like, this is a black owned distillery. Nobody knew. We didn't tell that story, but the team at Denord, And the people around it, they were the ones who were like, look, you talk a pretty good game, but you're not taking that personal risk. You're not putting yourself out there. And you had to have been like, what do you mean? I took the biggest risk opening this distillery to begin with. I mean, sure. Right. But if you get me, you know, a conversation like this and I'm talking about, well, I think people that we should open doors. We should diversify this industry and, you know, we should do all of these things. I think it's perfectly fine for someone to call on the bullshit and say, all right, well, but what about you? Like, 
you're talking about how we need to have examples for people, those, you know, the, the young chemists in college, they have to look and see like, hey, maybe I could do this. But why aren't you doing that? Where are you on the scene? Right. Like you always want to be in the back room. You always want to be hiding somewhere. It's like, where the hell are you? You know, talk is cheapest when the story is good. Good story. But what are you doing? And I'm like, ah, well, you know, when you're wrong, you're wrong. And like, that's that's basically it took other people. It took a lot of other people to say, Chris, get over yourself. We have an opportunity and we is the right word because it's not the Chris Montana show. If you spend any time around Denard, you will know that there is a group of people and it is that group that makes anything that we do happen. Right. I'm not even hardly in production anymore. Maria does that. Right. And so if whatever she's doing and the magic she's pulling back there, like that's in that bottle. And I do think that the bottle is an equalizer and it should be right it's perfectly fine and i I, if you those women that you listed uh myself uh folks at delta dirt uh all those places i'm sure would say they don't really want anyone to buy their juice because of who they are and i don't want anybody to buy our stuff just because it's black owned right i want them to buy it because it, it tastes good and you like it and if you don't like it you should never buy it again that's what should happen because it if I am going to entirely be about people saying like, we're going to buy this and we're just going to support it because it's black owned and we'll just keep buying it because it's black owned, then that means that my race has to be relevant in that decision. And if you accept that side of the coin, you have to accept the other side of the coin, which is that, well, my race could be the reason why someone doesn't buy it. It should be an equalizer, right? So again, what's in the bottle, the juice in the bottle matters. The story behind the bottle isn't as sexy. That's where we spend a lot of our time and it's it's a longer story to tell. It's harder to understand. You have to know a lot about the industry to know why we are so passionate about diversifying the industry. But when we're just doing the nerd talk like we are doing here, we can talk about that. But it could very well be that most people don't have the time to dig that far, to go to the website or do any of that kind of research. And that's cool because for them, if all they experience is the spirit itself, I'm happy with that. And I am fully aware of the fact that I probably have the ability to put that spirit in front of them because of an extraordinary investment that other companies have made in me, that the Nearest and Jack initiative made in me, that Delta Airlines made in me because they wanted to elevate a Black-owned distillery. So it's always going to be a part of who we are. We can't run from that. But I, I hope, you know, that... The only reason why, if we make a splash onto the scene, the only reason why we're here five years from now is because people are still buying it because they like it. To go back to what you're saying, where you know people could buy it because of that or not buy it because of that, but so it opens the door. You know, a lot of people are going to try it because of Delta Airlines. They're not going to know that it's a black-owned distillery. They're going to know that hey, I just like this or not. But at the same time, if people try it because of that, okay, it got you a sip. And then do they like what you're putting out? And then mm-hmm. that's going to determine if they're, you know, a repeat buyer. I'm not diminishing the race aspect of it. I'm I'm really trying to shut up and listen more than I talk here, but a lot of brands will always get that first sip regardless. I'll seek out as a connoisseur, but again, I'm the 1%. And I say this to everybody all the time is you know, the fact that I have a bourbon podcast, the people that listen to bourbon podcasts, like we are the 1% of the spirits community, but that 1% is going to go out and try everything because they're like, oh man, now I got to try mixed blood. 
I heard it's good. I want to check it out. I need two ounces of it. Or, you know, they're going to find a way to get it. That always gets you a sip. And then if they like it, they're going to continue to come. That's all it should be. That's perfectly fair. That is where it becomes the equalizer, right? Is, you know, I might get a sip, but the whiskey, the gin and the vodka and everything that's in there, that's going to speak for itself at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I would say that as someone who's very passionate about the industry and and very passionate about the people that are in it, I would agree with you 100%. There is a gap. There is 100% a gap. We do not get political on this show. We try not to because we'll put our foot in our mouth. We're we're two jackasses that will put our foot in our mouth more times than we will not. But anybody that doesn't see the importance of inclusion, there is a place for everybody in whiskey. And that's the, the thing I love about it is that it brings people together. If we say all the time that whiskey is a community and we're bringing people together and it's all about camaraderie and sitting around table with the poor having a good time and and we are excluding who can sit at that table then we're defeating the purpose of what whiskey is to begin with i agree you're well said my friend and i I say that wholeheartedly you have a friend in nashville now i have a friend down in new orleans that i really want to go visit I feel like we would probably drink too much, though, and get our wives mad at us because we'd be having so much fun. It's kind of what everyone does down here. So you'd, you'd be in pretty solid company. You know, it's we're recording this. It's it's carnival right now. I see all kinds of stuff going on in the city right now. We would be we would be the least of anybody's worries. So you're saying I need to leave my daughter with the in-laws and come on down. I'm saying exactly that. <laughs> You haven't seen yourself some Mardi Gras. You aren't you aren't living yet. I know. I know. Big rum town though. So if you're if you're not, you know, the distilleries down here are cranking out rum. And some of them are doing a really good job of it. But I know some whiskey folks haven't haven't come over to the to the rum game quite yet. There's a lot of whiskey folks that go to rum and Armagnac. There's a whole thing that um I think Fred wrote about it. It's the evolution of a whiskey drinker where you go from regular proof and then you go up to high proof and then you get bored and you go to rum and Armagnac and then you come back. Or maybe there's barrel picks mixed in there somewhere, but check out more information on the Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative. They're going to be accepting applications for the 2022 Business Incubation Program. For more information, visit nearestandjack.com. That's N-E-A-R-E-S-T-A-N-D-J-A-C-K. Dot com. And uh, if you want to visit Dunord, go ahead and visit them at dunordsocialspirits.com. That's D-U-N-O-R-D. I think you're on all the socials on Instagram and the Twitters and whatever the kids are doing nowadays, the Snapchats and the TikToks. And the... We're on all of that stuff. I like to say it like an old man, but I really do know what they all are. So I do know what they all are, and I'm not really on any of them. I think I, I probably made a Facebook post like, within the past two years but other than that i got nothing we have a very good team and they're all over it if i'm not posting in the dad's drinking bourbon facebook group i literally only use facebook to post pictures of my daughter so that family members can see and then post in the neighborhood facebook group which anybody who has a neighborhood those things are hilarious to read agreed Chris, thank you so much. We wish the best for Denord, and it was a pleasure talking to you. This is one of our longer podcasts. I will attempt to edit this down and edit myself out, 
more, but uh, thank you very much for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And go ahead and find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon, Twitter at Bourbon Dads, Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Find us wherever you download your podcasts. Leave us an open and honest review like we leave open and honest reviews about the whiskey we drink. You can also find us in Nashville, Tennessee. Cheers. Cheers.